global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the mood. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks gain with commodities as the focus shifts to corporate earnings. Asian futures track the global stock rebound. And Twitter executives take a somber tone saying that growth will still take time. Well, Chinese stocks were in the red again last night, but elsewhere, including Hong Kong, things looked up. We'll get into the markets this morning with Tempest Investments' John Schofield, and then we'll feature a discussion on how viable it is for charities to be self-sustaining. That's with Integrated Brilliant Education Trusts Manoj and Gitanjali Dhar, along with Charitable Choices' Cheryl Wilson. Enzio Von File, our regular guest host, is back today. Good morning, Enzio. Good morning Enzio. to you. Enzio, social media applications like Twitter, are they seeing signs of a decreasing lifespan? I don't think so. I think that what you're finding is that different social media applications are coming on board, but so the, the life span of, of Twitter is probably just going to be improved by, by Twitter itself improving. I see. All right. Well, uh, hold that thought. Let's uh, listen to what uh, some of the analysts have to say later on the show. Shanghai stocks were down another 1.7% yesterday and are still hovering at the 3600 level. The Shenzhen Composite was down 2.25% and eight shares also down about half a percent. But Chris McGuire, CEO at Phalanx Capital Management, thinks that it's time to buy Chinese stocks. He spoke to Bloomberg journalists on market makers. I think we're seeing that the government wants the market to go higher. Uh, they've prohibited shareholders and state-owned companies from selling shares until the market rallies as high as 4,500, which is 30 percent higher from here. But we're starting to see a lot of capitulation from retail. Retail drove the market up, and right now they are selling because they are getting caught on margin calls and just selling at any any sign of, uh, uh, of forced things down. And now we're seeing the capitulation that's giving us opportunity. In days, uh, but uh, in days past, we've put forth a view on this show. We actually think of Chinese investors as gamblers, perhaps uh, those that ran out of luck in Macau. Interestingly, Maguire thinks the same. I was always attracted to trading Chinese stocks because so many Chinese do flock to Macau and they do like to gamble. There's a mentality that uh, for years has we've seen in the Hong Kong markets where uh, investors are speculating rampantly. And we see that in the mainland as well. So we actually do classify a lot of Chinese investors as gamblers. And do those Chinese investors realize the risks they're taking at this point? When we go back to 2006, 2007, 2008, many professional investors said, sure, I'm a qualified institutional buyer, I know what I'm doing. And then when those markets froze, they were truly screwed and unprepared. Compare them to those Chinese investors and the sentiment around their investments. 
I think it's short memory, Stephanie. Uh, Wall Street, the financial markets have short memories. And exactly as you say, what happened in 07 and 08 when the market ran up and fell just as fast, we're seeing that again. Uh, markets repeat themselves. Uh, investors that may not have been uh, involved back then have been involved this time. And there's euphoria. Uh, investors tend to be lemmings. And everybody in China was running for the next way to make a buck. Now we're seeing it the other way, where they're all getting caught and everybody's running for the door at the same time. But you're counting on that uh, short memory to work in your favor. You're buying here and you expect Chinese stocks to bounce back as the lemmings uh, start to go back to the casino, basically. I do believe that. Uh, there is a lot of capitulation we've seen, but this will be volatile. Uh, after, market, after the market bottomed on July 8th and 9th, we did some buying, saw the market bounce back. And it was still unclear whether we would resume a high and see more foreign buying, sending the market back up to higher levels, or fall. What we saw two days ago was a dramatic fall. Uh, the market fell 8.5%, half of that happening in the last 30 minutes of trade. And now we're going to see a lot of choppiness, probably some more testing of the downside before we resume a high. So it's a very, very good trading market right now. U.S. stocks, uh, well, with new casinos coming online in Macau, casino owners are wagering that the consumer revolution in China will ultimately trump the impact of the corruption crackdown and bring the big spenders right back. U.S. stocks ended sharply higher overnight as attention shifted from troubled Chinese equities to American corporate earnings and to speculation that the first uh, Federal Reserve interest rate hike might not come until December. The Dow Jones rose just over 1% to close at 17,630. The S&P 500 rose 1.24% to close at 2,093. And the Nasdaq ended the day up 0.98% at 5089. In company news, Twitter's earnings and advertising revenue both topped estimates. The social media company posted second quarter earnings of 7 cents per share on 502 million dollars in revenue. Analysts expected Twitter to report earnings of 4 cents per share on 481 million dollars in revenue. That said, a warning on user growth sent shares negative. Here's Pivotal Research's Brian Weiser talking to Bloomberg. I've argued that the uh, user base doesn't really matter, although I realize investors are focused on it primarily because management's been focused on it. And you could argue that that's a disappointment, certainly. I think as people unpeel the numbers, you can see the U.S. uh, user growth was flat. Uh, If you assume there's any churn, that means that you know, they basically grew to replace churn, and uh, that's probably not going to be well-received. But my argument has been Twitter's always been a niche service. The point is that they monetize it reasonably well, and it's going to have a role. Yelp Incorporated, the operator of consumer review website Yelp.com, reported a surprise loss and forecast revenue for the current quarter that fell far below market expectations, sending its shares plummeting as much as 16% in after-hours trading last night. The company also reported its slowest revenue growth in 18 quarters in the three months ending June 30th. So what is the future of Yelp? Here's Convosocial's CEO Joshua March on Bloomberg. 
Yelp are working really hard on becoming a, a wider platform for small businesses, uh, and we know that that's something that, that, that's really difficult to do, uh, and they haven't really shown that they can do that in a wider way than, than just you know, reviews. They're certainly still successful as a reviews website. Um, I think they're seeing a lot of big challenges from a lot of online behavior moving into you know, the open social networks, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, people posting on there. Uh, that's a challenge, and they still have a lot of work to do. Um, yeah, I think they could be doing a lot more to, to work with large brands. Uh, they haven't right. invested in that space as, as much as they have in the small business space. And I think it, it's now, really, really hard to do, to do what they're trying to do. All right, let's bring on our first guest of this morning, John Schofield, who is a director at Tempest Investment in Hong Kong. Good morning, John. Yes, good morning to you. So, John, uh, no moves on interest rates are expected this week, but uh, the China stock rescue situation, has this created another headache for Janet Yellen? Um, I, I doubt it. I, I think what we've seen is that this is going to, um, uh, you know, the U.S. economy is, is, is marching to its own drum uh, these days, as is the market, as it, as it has been for several years, you know, and it's in pretty good shape. So, um, okay, if there's a sort of global financial crisis. Um, but I, th- I don't think so for another reason, because, you know, China is still isolated from the outside world, although, the, you know, the domestic Asia capital market is effectively isolated, uh, apart from these tiny, uh, tiny windows through the Shang- uh, Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect. So I think strategically, uh, I, I, I don't think it will be a, an issue for them. Okay, so China is more isolated. How then, uh, how concerned, I should say, are the, uh, do you think are the ordinary Chinese then? Um, well, I, well, if I were Chinese, I'd certainly be concerned. Um, but, uh, I mean, just looking at the, the reason I made those comments is that, is that because basically we have a, um, what we've learned from all this, I think, is that the China capital market is not a proper functioning capital market that fulfills the, 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 the two roles. One is raising finance for, for industry and, and two, providing uh, long-term savers and investors, pension funds and all the like, with a store of value and something where they can, you know, and a source of income from which they can, they can earn a living post, post-retirement, you know. And that's the, that's the paradigm in, in, in the West, particularly U.S. and also the U.K., and um, where we have a market that's 80% retail turnover, uh, and the rest appears to be, um, specu- you know, corporate speculation, uh, cross-trading of, of, of shares within groups and so on. Um, in my opinion, you know, there's absolutely no chance or whatever that we're going to have a... It's going to take many years, put it that way, to... Um, but I hope, what I'm hoping is that the Chinese authorities will learn from this and then get on with the job, the strategic job, uh, of developing their capital markets rather than all this sort of tinkering and open little windows here and, uh, and tinkering with rules there and who can, who, can, who can use futures, who can get margin and this, that and the other. Enzio, you had a thought? John, yes. Having worked with you for many years, as a hello, seasoned... Enzio. Hello, morning to you. As a seasoned chartist, the China charts always look a little bit like a mechanic with a hangover to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know whether you you find your chartist systems functioning is against the backdrop of what you've just said. Do charts really work with China, or are they just mechanics with a hangover? Um, yeah, they work. The, the difference is that you know you get more extreme results. So um, you know during the bull run things go you know much higher. The market becomes much more overbought and stays overbought for 
much longer. And equally, when the when the thing turns lower, you know, you have virtual panic situations as, as we just. So seen. it's a mechanic with a terrible hangover. Yes. <laughs> so that's pretty much. Um, but it, you know, it does work. I can I can read the trends and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, and what right are they now. Saying? Uh, well, right now I think it's interesting. We've just had a um, on. Let me just check the exact day. Um, the sort of intervention finally started to have an effect on the 9th of July um, when the index bounced off the 200-day moving average. Um, and as of uh, Monday and yesterday, we retested that moving average. So we've had a little bit of a bounce, a bit of a trading range, and it seems to be coming down again. But as long if I were handling this intervention and I wanted to keep the market stable, I would defend this, um, this level, this 200-day moving average level as, as hard as I could. Uh, the concern is that they've already blown, uh, you know, a lot of the ammunition, but um, we'll just have to see. That, by the way, on the index that I look at, which is mostly, which is the Shanghai Shenzhen uh, CSI 300, that 200-day level is um, 3,750 roughly. And uh, is that the thing that we, our listeners, really should be looking at, the 200-day moving average? Yeah, I think if that breaks, um, I think if that breaks, we will see... Um, and I think it will eventually. We may get more. We may get more sideways trading trading for a little while. But um, you know, the, the, the shoe, the other shoe needs to drop. I think. I think it's highly. Pro- you know, after such a, you know, these sort of crash situations, there's nearly always two two episodes at least on the on the downside. John, uh, Chris Maguire spoke earlier about this presenting a buying opportunity and about China having a good trading market right now. But, uh, you know, so much uh, share trading has been suspended. Yeah. How could it, this possibly present a good trading yeah. market? Well, certainly he's a braver man than I. Um, certainly if you're going to get involved like that, you have to be very quick in and out. Um, okay, he, he apparently made some money. He started making money after the after the rebound on the 9th of July, as I said. But that will have all been given back by now. Um, just looking at the index chart anyway. John, um, stock what... picking aside. Yeah, stock booking. Okay. What are you recommending? Are you recommending a purchase of eight shares, dual listings, Chinese shares? Well, uh, again, trying to take a more strategic, slightly more strategic view. I think the good news for all this uh, is for Hong, for Hong Kong in all this is that... Um, you know, it's pretty clear that China is going to be uh, dependent on Hong Kong to have a proper functioning capital market of the sort, um, the sort that I was describing earlier, um, and that's going to be um, that's going to be the case, in my view, for many years. So it's kind of in a backhanded sort of way, good news for Hong Kong, I think. Um, as we know, the valuations are much lower. I think it's going to take a while, however, for the you know the actual market to rally the market in eight shares or red chips or whatever. Uh, but it's worth remembering the, this premium, the famous uh, you know AH premium, is still uh, even after the crash uh, in Asia, as is still at thirty-seven point five percent as of last night's close. So you know the value is there in Hong Kong. Uh, all the best stocks, all the best China stocks, like you know Tencent, for example, um, China Mobile, all these sort of things that institutional investors 
want to be able to buy in, in large quantities All right. even away are, um, are listed on Hong Kong. You know, Thank that's, you. That's our advantage. Thanks, John. Unfortunately, we are out of time. That is yep. John Schofield, who is the director at Tempest Investment in Hong Kong. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. A quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is up four-tenths of a percent to 20,417. Australia's ASX 200 index is up 0.16% to 5,579. And Seoul's Cospi up uh, seven-tenths of a percent to 2,053. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.10 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 123.58 yen. And one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and nine cents and one US dollar and 56 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about the viability of uh, self-sustaining charities here in Hong Kong. That's right after this. According to the laws of Hong Kong, it's a serious offense to sell counterfeit and pirated goods on the internet, including through social networking platforms. Young people running online businesses shouldn't assume that using terms such as like real can make it okay. Once convicted, your prospects will be ruined. Selling infringing goods on the internet ruins your prospects. Customs Information Hotline 2545-6182. in life are free but you can give them to the birds and bees I want money The time is now 8.19 a.m. and Hong Kong is filled with charities, more than 700 of them and new ones coming online every day. Most charities that we know about rely on donations, but how viable is that in the long term, especially for newer unknown charities? Can they be self-sustaining at all? Today we'll look at the example of Integrated Brilliant Education Trust, which runs language and educational support programs for ethnic minority kids in Hong Kong. We are joined by its founders, Gitanjali and Manoj Dhar, and also by Cheryl Wilson, who is the CEO of Charitable Choice. She'll lend us her perspective on the issue. So good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Gitanjali Manoj, if uh, I could uh, turn the first question to you, Uh, your charity, IBET, International, uh, excuse me, Integrated Brilliant Education Trust, aims to be self-sustaining in that you charge ethnic minority students a low, heavily subsidized fee for classes. What is that fee? And can your charity actually run on its own on this model? The fee uh, is highly subsidized, as you just mentioned. The aim is, first of all, to charge the fee here is... uh, not from a business perspective, really. It was more to get the accountability on the part of the student and also that we feel the student makes sure, the parents make sure that the students are regular and they are coming and putting in their best. However, in order to operate, a charity also has a lot of costs. We are running an education center with huge costs, the teacher's salaries, the infrastructure, etc. These, of course, will go not um, they're not a lot the funding is not a lot uh, through the fees so that's why in order to in the in the initial stages we are looking for funding through donors through uh, corporate uh, help support everything 
Okay. So could you not actually add more students into the mix uh, to basically raise the fee structure uh, so that uh, the charity could become self-sustaining in time? That's a very good question, Renita. In order to uh, give uh, credibility, lend credibility to the to the education centers that the trust is planning to operate, the first one being in Jordan, we have gone in for licensing through the EDB, the Education Bureau. Under the Bureau, we have to go through extensive inspections and we have to um, uh, comply with the guidelines of building department, hygiene department, fire department, and the EDB themselves. So what happens is when they come and do the inspections, it is they who give us the number that this is the, uh, this is the number of students that are allowed in each classroom or in the center at one given time. So this sounds like a building permits issue. Cheryl, what do you think about this? I mean, is it right or fair or correct uh, for the EDB to actually put limitations on the numbers that they can accept because it makes it all the more difficult for them to be self-sustaining. Yes, I think, I mean, I think the EDB looks at it from a different perspective often. I mean, they're, they're looking at it from a safety issue, um, how many people can fit into a classroom and safely be evacuated. So I think there are other concerns, um, but it is a challenge definitely running an educational institution because all the students want to come at the same time after school. So you only have a very small window in which to operate your program. That's so right. it is a challenge, definitely. So Cheryl, what is the alternative then for a charity like IBET? What else could they be doing? Uh, well, we work with about 43 local charities and we see some of them running uh, sort of a hybrid model. So they would charge full fees for certain students that could afford to pay. Um, and those fees then may subsidize uh, some of the low income students that may not be able to pay the full fee. Um, so there may be sort of some sort of hybrid model there um, that have been that has been applied successfully by other charities, perhaps. What do you think about that, Gitanjali Manoj? Oh, well, uh, from our perspective, I think the hybrid uh, model wouldn't necessarily apply because we are just very sp uh, specifically focused on the underprivileged ethnic minorities, and they all flaw in the, fall in the low-income group. And uh, so all of them need to be marginalized, and you can't really specifically go and say that X is going to pay full because Y has to be subsidized. So, um, so yeah, so that is unfortunately not an option for us. But, you know, just to add on to the earlier thing that uh, the, uh, the reason why we were charging XYZ uh, subsidized fees was, one, uh, to be able to eventually become uh, self-sustainable. And that came from the fact that you can't always be relying on donations and donors and philanthropists to come in and bail you out. Uh, the second logic and philosophy behind that was that it's always nice to, uh, let's say, tell even the students or the parents coming in that in life, nothing comes for free. Mm. So if you need to get something out of life, you need to be able to invest something in life, even if it's one cent, one dollar, and of course, your time, effort, sweat and blood. So, so those were the two basic uh, philosophies which, uh, you know, made us go in for uh, this kind of a self-sustaining model. So it sounds like um, there is a different kind of hybrid model in place in that, you know, it's partly fees and partly donations. Yes. Is the idea that it will ever 
become reliant purely on fees? Can that happen? Oh yes, of course. I mean, we have uh, been in operation. We opened our doors in uh, on June 12 after we got our registration. Prior to that, there was a high. We didn't uh, number allowed was just about eight per batch, mm. so we couldn't really go beyond that. June 12 we got our registration and the number has been doubling tripling i mean we our efforts to go and reach out to the community are really bearing fruit like we are going and talking to them and they are very happy to come to our center eventually i do see it uh, getting being totally self sustainable we'll be having programs on weekends we've already started on saturdays and once we have a certain number we will be because our costs as such we are keeping very low it's just uh, the you know the rental and a couple of uh, staff and we our teacher cost is low because what we are doing is we are hiring the university students to come and work at also um, lower fee than what a higher a teacher would charge but this is also to benefit that segment the the students are coming to uh, teach and pick up experience and skills social skills for their benefit as well enzio you had a question yes just to the three do- contributors to i was about to say donors what is the key reason that people donate to your charity given that there's such a the high school costs here already why would they donate to your charities oh uh, well uh, i think the first and the key and the most important thing is education uh education as a um as a topic and as an issue is of prime importance in every society in every civilization in every part of the world so that itself uh strikes a good keynote uh, with the people uh the second thing is that they see a model uh, let's say this when when they see us the way the ibet setup is run uh it's got good regulatory um checks on it as in it's got section 88 and now it's got the edb licensing approval etc so the credibility factor and the comfort levels for a uh, philanthropist or you know generous minded people is that much higher and uh, of course the third part is that uh, they realize that uh, the ethnic minorities the underprivileged ethnic minorities are being deprived uh, of an opportunity to integrate into mainstream hong kong and education is perhaps uh, the most powerful strong tool uh, all very good points cheryl i'd like to just uh, ask one one question before we wrap up and that is uh, you know given what manoj has just said i mean and ed um, excuse me i bet is certainly doing something that no other charity has done before in hong kong ie providing these classes for ethnic minority kids who cannot afford it and are disadvantaged in local schools um how realistic is it for donors in hong kong to realize that and support them on a continuing basis rather than just as a one off you know they're new hmm. i think that's always a challenge for charities yeah. is you know donors often engage in a one off experience they'll they'll either yeah. donate something financially or in kind and it's just once and it's really difficult for charities to then plan their programs um but you know i think our, our you know if, if there are individual or corporate donors listening today i mean the key is to engage with the charity on an ongoing basis and that's you know the charities also have the the owners to provide regular reports um but also opportunities for the for the donors to come and view the programs and to take part so that they feel engaged with the charity um and also together if there is any sort of media exposure and things like that where the company or the individual can improve their brand and their their image i think you know these sorts of opportunities can only happen if the engagement is for a longer term so all right definitely. thank 
Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Cheryl Wilson, and she is the founder of Charitable Choice. And thanks also to Gitanjali Dhar and Manoj Dhar, Thank you. the founders of the Integrated Brilliant Education Trust. Thank you. Well, here we are at the end of the show. Uh, let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up four tenths of a percent to 20,417. Australia's ASX 200 index is up 0.16% to 5,579. And Seoul's Kospi up 7 tenths of a percent to 2,053. Gold currently stands at $1,094 per ounce. And Brent crude oil at $53.30. Well, Enzio, here we are. It's a slap bang in the middle of the week. What should we be looking out for? One thing next to the mechanic with a hangover clearly is the Fed meeting, which will come, the minutes of which will be released today. You want to watch for three things. If the unemployment rate begins rising above 5.3%, or excuse me, below 5.3%, if inflation goes above 2%, and if they drop the words nearly balanced in their statement today, then you can really bet on a rate rise in September. And that's going to make for market volatility. All right, Enzio. Thank you so much for that. I like the mechanic with the hangover the best. I don't with Alka-Seltzer, but thank you. (laughs) Enzio Von File is an investment strategist at Private Capital and a regular guest host on Money for Nothing. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition. The weather forecast today will be uh, sunny. There'll be sunny periods and a few showers, and it will be very hot. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 79%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Sam Butler. Despite mounting pressure from students and alumni, the University of Hong Kong's governing body has decided not to change its earlier decision to defer the appointment of a pro-vice-chancellor. Last night's meeting of the HKU Council ended in chaos when dozens of protesters stormed the meeting, resulting in two council members being sent to hospital. Pro-democracy scholar Johannes Chan has been recommended for the post, but protesters believe he's not been confirmed because of his political views. However, the council has said it wants to fill a supervisory post for First. Education sector lawmaker Ipkin Yun told RTHK this reason was 